0: It's the Almost Perfect Podcast. Welcome to the Almost Perfect Podcast. A celebration of fuck-ups, failures, and falling flat on your face. This is a podcast that believes you can learn from experience, but that experience doesn't have to be your own. Ha! I'm Bob Perfect, and I'm a functional fuck-up. Let's learn from somebody else's mistakes. And today we are learning from Rafawa Manetta. Now, Rafawa is a writer and an arts and culture journalist. He's self-published multiple books, and his latest one being a collection of essays called Your Father, the Hip-Hop Head. That comes up quite a bit in this conversation. But he's also picked up a proper book deal with Blackbird Publishing. So you're going to get to read that coming out in September. And that's about his dad, who was a cop, which guess what we also talk about? on this podcast. So yeah man, this is a really fun chat. This is a great chat. This is one I'd be looking forward to for a while. I was actually going to wait until the next book came out, but then for Father's Day, Rafawa put out this really dope collection of essays that are super open, super honest. He calls it emotional pornography, and I can see why he says that because it is just gut-wrenchingly real. So I recommend you go read that either before or after this, like just as long as you listen to this and you read that, I'll be happy with you. But yeah, this podcast, we chat a lot, man. Obviously, you can see, you can see the time, you can see we went over the, the regular hour mark there. We chatted about the genius of Bo Burnham. We both love Bo Burnham. Uh, we talk about fatherhood, obviously, the the pressures of that and the realities of all of that talk about self-publishing we talk about why you shouldn't buy property and what's really cool about this podcast for me at least is that like it's very clear that Rafael listens to the podcast he references tons of different episodes tons of different things that I've mentioned things that other people have mentioned and that was a really cool experience to be a part of to actually like I mean, I guess at 102 episodes now, you know, that might that might come up. And I know quite a few of the people that have been on the podcast in the past have also listened to the podcast, but I don't think I've ever discussed as many previous things and as many previous thoughts and ideas and concepts with someone on, you know, the podcast. I know people have referenced stuff before, but it's not necessarily like the stuff like Baudrillard and like... Yeah, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So, this was rad. It's always cool getting to chat to other writers, and especially ones that I think are in a similar lane and a similar vein to me. Although, I think, like, we're obviously very, very different writers, very different styles, but similar interests at times. And yeah, like, I think our Twitter personalities are quite different. You'll notice, or well, quite different to what you'll hear on this podcast because we can both be fairly abrasive on the internet but yeah I think it's a it's a fun god down kind of conversation I think we might say some things that you're going to disagree with and that's fine it's it's allowed we're allowed to do that people it's okay we don't have to share the exact same opinions we all have different lives to lead and uh yeah you don't you've got to live your own fucking life you can't be living it based on what other people tell you sometimes you know sometimes other people give us a pretty good advice so i've heard uh yeah so that's that's what we got coming up for you in just a little bit of course i need to let you know that this is a listener supported podcast that means it is brought to you by you we're going to patreon.com forward slash almost perfect and you can also buy a mug from me. Yes. Almost perfect mugs, literally just the logo slapped on a mug. I know, very creative. But as the as the budget grows, as the merch budget grows, as the the Patreon stacks get racked higher, then I'll be able to collaborate with past guests of the podcast. You know, there's been quite a few designers. There's been quite a few people who are gifted graphically, and I'd love to get them to design various different pieces of merch for the Almost Perfect podcast. So. Sign up to the almost perfect Patreon account, and that can happen. But like I said, we've got almost perfect mugs. They are 100 rand each. 10 rand from each sale goes to Sasoncare. Now, Sasoncare is an organization by sex workers for sex workers that are working to decriminalize sex work. Funny that that sex workers would want sex work decriminalized. I know, but you can check them out over at sasoncare.org.za, and you can give them a bunch of money, and then you can kind of give me the rest, and then. Like a little bit of that will still go to them, so yeah, go check them out to so sonke.org.za. And other than that, I hope you're having a good week. Right now, I actually can't really remember what's happened this week. Uh, I didn't write that many notes, so I don't know what the vibe is. I know shit's always cray cray out there on the on the streets and on the tweets and all the vibes. Oh yeah, Brittany, that's that's what's been going down this week. I'm hoping, yeah, she gets free. Obviously, just like everyone else. But I do think the whole media storm around it is kind of... I mean, she does say that she wants people to know and all of that. But it does still feel like a media frenzy. It does still feel like everyone's getting clicks off of her misery. And yeah, I don't know. I tweeted something earlier that some people disagreed with. But I do think we need to... Look at our actions when it comes to celebrity culture in general, like how we put celebrities on a pedestal and also how we buy into the bringing down of celebrities. And people literally click on these stories and used to buy the magazines that would have all this crap gossip in it. But that's what the public often wants. And personally, I think the public is complicit in some of what the media does. Like, sometimes if you buy, if the magazine's highest rated fucking, you know, issue is one where they are busy posting pictures of Britney having a breakdown, then of course, that's the kind of stuff they're going to keep trying to get out of celebrities. And they're going to keep posting that kind of stuff because you bought it. And I do think, like, it's one of those things, man, personal responsibility might just be a thing. Maybe not. Maybe it's all societal. Maybe we're all unable to control ourselves and we have to partake in fucking lunacy and not examine our own actions and how we might contribute to certain negative aspects of our culture. Maybe, maybe not. You know, who knows? Who's to who's to say? What the fuck do I know anyway? I just sit here in my ivory tower by every time, i mean first floor apartment on a busy road and just judge the world from from my my throne <laughs> my, my swivelly chair so yeah that's that's what's been going on this week i'm sure there's other stuff but i don't really necessarily give a fuck right now i've been a little busy i've been focused on my own shit it's been good to be focused on my own shit again it's been cool to be creative i've been working on my one-man show it's not the end of the world just a little bit each day just been refining some jokes putting in some notes that i had and like you know that i've been taking and yeah just trying to flesh it out more trying to make it more relevant more current since i originally wrote it like two years ago uh, before the pandemic obviously so i have to include that stuff also been working on super delinquent squad with sheldon bengston well, he's been submitting stuff to various different producers and stuff like that. For those of you who don't know, it's a cartoon we've been working on together. We've got quite a few scripts. We've got the all the characters done. We've got the art. We've got an animatic for the first episode done. We've got some cool people involved in the voice acting. We've got we've got a vibe going on, you know, like we've got we've got something. We've got a pitch bubble, <laughs> we've got a bunch of episodes in the can. And yeah, I'm gonna keep refining that. Keep, I've gotta, yeah, I've gotta rewrite some of my my work with that and just keep trying to make that better until eventually maybe it'll be a thing. And if not, maybe the next thing we do will be a thing. So I'm not too stressed about it. It has been cool, as I say, just to be able to work on creative projects. And then I've also been doing some other copywriting work that's slightly less creative, but still good to be writing and challenging yourself. And all of that. So that's where I'm at. I think for those of you who have been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll be like, at least he's not wanting to throw himself out of the fucking window this week. So that's good. And yeah, I agree with you. That is good. Anyway, I need to let you know once again that this podcast is brought to you by you. That means you can go to patreon.com forward slash almost perfect. And over there, there are a bunch of different tiers. There's the $1 tier, there's a the $5 tier. But then. And there's the $10 tier. Now this, this is the titular titles tier. And let me tell you, this is where you want to be. This is the elite club. This is like the pinnacle. This is just the top of the top, the cream of the crop. And these people are part of the cast and crew of the Almost Perfect Podcast. That's it. You can buy your way onto the cast and crew here. It's super simple. You now get to put this on your CV for life. I will back you up. I know I've said before that maybe I won't because of legal issues. But fuck it. Fuck the legal issues. Put this thing on your CV. Because shout outs to Neil Green, who is the key grip. He is also the champion flaker. He'll know what that means. Uh, shout outs to Karan Slemon, who is the almost perfect hedge fund manager. Shout outs to Kath Jenkin, who is the inevitable ruler of the universe. And Queen Swifty. Shoutouts to Karan Chetty, assistant to the regional manager. We're still looking for a regional manager, by the way. Uh, we're not promoting Karan. He's staying as the assistant. So if anyone wants to come in and be the regional manager, then uh, you know what to do. Next up, we've got Chief Sales Officer of Subtle Heresies in the Greater Oberberg region. Of course, that is Rousseau. Next up, we have got our executive producer, Stephen Olofea. shout Shoutouts, of course, to Vishendra Nadu, a spiritual advisor. Giving some great advice in general. Really keeping me spiritual as fuck. Much appreciated. Uh, Shoutouts, of course, to Tyrone Love, who is our pantsless weasel. Still have not got that weasel any pants. Can we please get a weasel pantser? We also need a weasel pantser here in the titular titles tier. We need someone to put some pants on that motherfucking weasel. Up next, we have got Julian. And of course, they are the king. And lastly... We have got our anonymous benefactor. The anonymous benefactor is someone who doesn't want to be shouted out. But if you can guess who they are, you hit me up at Bob at almostperfect.co.za. I'll send you a pack of almost perfect stickers. And oh yeah, that was something I was meant to tell you at the beginning of this whole thing. If you sign up to the Patreon, I'll send you some stickers. Some of you are like, no you won't, because I haven't sent them for like the last couple of weeks. But I will, I promise, they're coming, they're coming. So is Christmas. But I promise you, you will get stickers before Christmas if you sign up to the Patreon now. That is the almost perfect brand promise. <laughs> but yeah, the Anonymous Benefactor. Sorry, I lost the plot there a little bit. The Anonymous Benefactor, this week, I'm going to let you know that uh, the clue, hmm, the clue is that they love retro video games. So if you can figure out who that is, let me know, Bob at Almost Perfect. You got to put all the clues together. I've given different clues each week. You got to put them together. Bob at Almost Perfect.co.za And that's that. That's the shilling. That's the rambling. Actually, shit, I got to let you know one more fucking thing. Shout outs, of course, to Matthew Breaker, who is the latest patron over at patreon.com. Big fan of your work. Thank you for signing up to the Almost Perfect Patreon. I much, much appreciate it. And with all of that out the way, on this totally ad-free podcast, here comes the almost perfect podcast with Rafiwa Maneta.
1: So, how are you living, Rafiwa? Ah, uh, I'm good, man. Um, so yeah, it's obviously I think just to give some context to anyone who's going to be listening, it's like nine p.m. So I just had <laughs> to put my son to sleep before we did this, cause yeah, otherwise he would have been bouncing off the walls. So yeah. Feeling good, like I have some coffee. Had some coffee, so yeah, feeling good. No,
0: no, not not a nine p.m. coffee. That is, that is disastrous.
1: How can you do that to yourself? <laughs> no, I mean, like I usually sleep at like one o'clock anyway, because like I usually work. Like I, I mean, I they call it nine to five, but it's always like nine to nine, and then <laughs> you know, sort of I'll do some freelance stuff after that um and then maybe i'll read so i always fall asleep at like one o'clock in any in any case so yeah i mean yeah <laughs> not complaining
0: yeah no i'm also like i usually go to bed around one or two because it's just when you have the least dis- amount of distraction so that's when i found i can like if i want to write something and i need like yeah. space that starting at 10 o'clock at night is usually like prime time for me you know
1: yeah yeah i mean i mean you're 100 percent right i mean like i said also like so i have a son and i mean these past two weeks well i mean like for the next two weeks is off school um so yeah i mean usually during the day oh, like that's why
0: there's go. been so many kids like making noise outside okay
1: <laughs> yeah because they're close so i mean like you know during the day i'm trying to ride but also have to keep an eye on him give him you know his attention usually I only get like most of my writing done like at 11 because that's like you know no one's you know no one's trying to talk to me I'm not on Twitter or anything I can just write and yeah so I usually write like close to to midnight anyway
0: yeah I think just in the modern era especially like with stuff like Twitter and I mean, I remember it even like within the MySpace days because like Sunday evenings used to be like the MySpace heavy night when everyone was like on MySpace. <laughs> and then like I would write afterwards or like I would upload my blog before that, you know, to make sure I caught everyone at that time. And then like, yeah, I have that like quiet period afterwards. And I find like, yeah, we have that these days with the various social medias. But if you follow people from overseas, it becomes like less and less of like this respect. So you actually just have to like, put the fucking phone down make sure you don't open twitter up cuz for me that is like my biggest <laughs> distraction bro it's like the biggest time suck it's something that i just you know like i just i don't know how to quit you you know it's like i wish i knew how to quit you that's the that's the fucking quote like that's how i feel like every morning when i eventually like open it up i'm just like i wish i knew how to fucking not do this but you're someone who who shares
1: a ton on twitter that's the thing so I was going to echo your sentiment so I you know I, I'm one of those people who hate Twitter but I've just sort of like come to accept that I'm never going to leave Twitter at all Yeah I mean it's just it's weird cuz like Twitter's also like a huge distraction for me so I actually work sort of like in in social media you know yeah. what I mean that's that that's what I do so I'm you know I'm always going to be like on the internet anyway but yeah man like I think I'm I'm just like you as well like if I don't sort of like put off the time like, I'm just never gonna, I'm just never gonna put the phone down, and it's weird, because, like, you know, obviously, before, you know, we were chatting, before we hit record, and I was telling you, like, you know, I was almost, I've also been reading quite a lot of Baldriard as well, and it's crazy, man, just, like, how, it's weird, like, there, there's this dude called J.G. Ballard, he was a sci-fi author as well, and yeah. he also, like, predicted the rise of social media. So he he said, I just can't remember in which book it was. It could have been the atrocity exhibition. You know, he was kind of like, one day there'll kind of be like this media landscape, you know, where it's like just this huge burlesque and everyone's just like, you know, their own entertainment, you know, you're essentially going to be the media. And I think that's Twitter. And And, and it's crazy because I was listening to an episode of yours, I think two weeks back, where you were saying like the most frustrating thing about Twitter is that it's not sequential. So you can never like log on and have like one story. Like you could log on and the first tweet you see is like someone doing yoga. And then the second tweet is someone saying, ah, like women are shit. And then the third one is just like someone's trending who you've never heard of. So yeah, like I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter.
0: Yeah, because it's also like for writers, it is a space that like we find each other and we find work as well. And we like, like literally it's a space where you can promote your work. It's one of the best avenues for it. Like as a writer, it is, well, it used to be at least, like I don't know if people read anymore. How, how have you been finding that part of life? Because, like, I've known you as a music journalist for years. Like, I've followed your work for quite a long time now. Like, And, mm. yeah, man, like, I see you've been echoing some of my some of my frustrations that I have, like, with the, the freelance journalism world. So how have you been finding that thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, so, so first of all, like, it's a bit crazy. I don't know if you remember how we actually sort of, like, met online. It was in I 2015. you
0: asked me for contact, right? Or no, I, I didn't. So
1: okay. it, it was okay. during Fees Must Fall. And I think Roger gave you my contact because like, Vice yes. was looking for people who write about Fees Must Fall. And then he said someone will contact you. And then when I saw your name, like Bob Perfect, I was like, nah, this has to be a spam bot. Like, this can't be an actual <laughs> thing. And then you were like, hey, would you like to write for Vice? and And that's actually how I you know um how I started writing yeah that was it um so yeah shout out for that but yeah I mean like freelancing I ah dude like I just I'm just so sick of of like writing I I think I was I was I was saying on Twitter like last week that nah I just I think I'm done with like journalism because it's just weird man like you write an article And then, you know, you kind of have to follow up when you have to get paid. So there's this like brand and I can't put them on blast because they haven't paid me yet. But it's a really famous whiskey brand. Like I did some content for them and they owe me like 11K. And they're just like basically telling me to eat shit and die when I I asked them, like, when I'm going to get my money. So at first, like, you know, I was like, nah, you know, you're going to pay me my money. I want my money now. And then after a while, I was just like, you know, come on, I have a son. Like, I need this money. So, yeah, I don't need that shit, man. Like, I just, it's just not worth the effort. Plus, I mean, you know, I kind of have a nine to five, so I don't really need to freelance anymore. So, yeah, very disillusioned with with that entire thing.
0: Yeah, shit, man. Like, you're reminding me of this time that I wrote a thing for American Express and mm. a, guide to, a 24-hour guide to Durban. And they just weren't fucking paying me. And so I got like a bunch of my friends to just start bombing their Facebook, like just saying pay Bob, pay Bob, pay Bob (laughs) and like putting negative reviews and fucking. Yeah. So I got my money pretty soon after that. Never (laughs) work with them again, but I figured that wasn't (laughs) happening anyway, because like if you don't pay me on time, like I don't fucking want to work with you again. Like that is. Yeah, that's the one thing I can say like about it like some of the publications I've at least worked with is they might not have paid a lot, but they at least like made sure that like that invoice was paid within like two days, a lot of the time. So i got a respect for that.
1: Yeah, man with vice. I know like, it's just, I mean, I'm never going to write for them again with them. I always know yeah. the first one is free. So whether you write for vice, the first one was free, even though you agreed on a, on a rate, Noisy, I think, was pretty cool, but with Vice, they're just like, you know, fuck it, we might pay you, we might not. So, yeah, I've, uh, yeah. Yeah, they're strange, like, because it's very
0: much, I think, dependent on the editor. Like, I like I had one cool editor and then one shit editor, and then, <laughs> like, the shit editor was wild. Like, I just was stopped writing for them, because I was also like, people think they... Like, you know, you can make more money because it's in dollars, but like the rates over there is so fucking shit. Like I would not be a journalist in America if I had to eat like American food. Like that does not make any sense to me. Like you're getting like $50 for like 500 words. And it's like, how is this like, how does this work? How are you eating? Like, I don't get it. But then you find out that they're all like rich kids. So, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. it's crazy that you bring up the exchange rate thing. So like my mom as well is the one who cause like I'll tell her, for example, like I, I pretty much tell her about everything I write. I'll tell her, okay, cool. I'm writing for like a publication in, you know, the UK. And then she's like, oh, they'll pay you in pounds. And then it's like, yeah, but maybe it's like, you know, 50 pounds. You know what I mean? So it's like 700 bucks, you know, just as an example. So yeah, I wonder how people over there like actually eat. Cause like you said, I think Vice Vice, I think, used to pay me like a hundred and fifty dollars. I think it always used to translate to just under three thousand rand. But like you're writing like over a thousand words, right? Exactly, exactly. So, so, so the rate actually goes like when you, you know, when you calculate it, you're actually getting paid less than what you would have get gotten paid in South Africa. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did it for the, yeah, I just did it for the byline. I was just like, okay, cool, if I can get a couple of bylines here. But like now, I'm just like. Because they got in touch at some point, sometime last year, and I was just like, ah, not, no no fucking way. No ways am I writing to you guys. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, we are disillusioning, like, things for up-and-coming writers. It's so hard right
0: now. But it's the reality <laughs> of things, and I think people are seeing it, like, especially, like, on Twitter. Like, you see so many, like, disgruntled journalists, you know, like, some are good, some are bad, but, like the general feeling is that it's not the right space to be in at the moment if you want to be happy and make money.
1: Yeah. No, man. Like for me, just generally speaking, to tell you the truth, I remember the last time sort of I was like, sort of like a practicing journalist, like sort of full-time freelance, if that makes sense, was like 2018. But that's because my son had just been born, you know, so I was doing a nine to five and I was freelancing but it's never really worth it. You know what I mean? Like I said, like chasing up for the money. And I think, you know, I'm just one of those people who really, really enjoyed like print, even, even to this day, like I like having a print copy of something. I like having something that stays put, you know what I mean? And like, if you look at, for example, the mail and guardian, you know, just like a lot of like the papers, like I, I grew up reading, like sort of like the arts and culture publications, you know, they've you know they've had to let stuff go you know the papers have you know it's turned into like a two-pager it's like a pamphlet you know what i mean so i just don't think it's worth it anyway because you're never going to write what you want to write and then you're never going to get paid anyway so yeah no thank
0: you And it's also it's a lot of emotional work and it's a lot of Mm -hmm. like like well especially i think the way you write about music and the way i sometimes write about music depending on how much I actually care. Um, <laughs> like, I'll be honest, like, there were there's some things I've written that, like, I fucking, I was on autopilot, you know, like, but there's a lot of stuff that was also because I genuinely cared and wanted to get it, like, you know, out there and wanted to talk about what was happening. And that sort of stuff, like, is, like, an emotional commitment and it is stuff where you've got to do research and you spend a lot of time listening to the music and, like, you know, trying to understand what the artist is doing and why they're doing it and, like, how it resonates with you, how it will resonate with other people. And that is way more work than three 50 a word, you know? Like, mm, that's just yeah. the, like, that's just the truth of the matter. And, like, I've been doing copywriting for the last while now. Like, that's how I'm making my money. I'm doing blog posts and various other things. And mm. it's way less stressful. Yeah, <laughs> It's just, yeah. for me at least, you know, for because I'm not as emotionally attached to it, I guess. It's just about trying to come up with, you know, words that say the thing. But when, you know, you, you're trying to write about music, you're actually trying to, like, explain
1: so much more. Mm, mm. You know what I actually, like, it just reminded me of, like, um when you had that interview with Subs. um, And I yeah. remember you were talking about reviews and the function of, like, music reviews. And you were like, okay, cool. Like, you know, a review isn't supposed to be, like sort of okay, track one, you know, there's a bit of piano, track two is down tempo. You know, they're meant to be yeah, sort like, of like-, like Anthony Fantano. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're meant I to do be love
0: public- his, I do love his reviews though. So.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. But I liked what you said, because you said, like, reviews are actually meant to be like public conversations, you know. You sort of, like, take the work and you frame it within the larger context of, you know, maybe pop culture and society. So that, you know, you use the review as an entry point for people to discuss, you know, maybe things other than the music itself. And I thought that was pretty dope. And I think that's why, like, because I used to read some of the stuff you did at Bubblegum Club. I think I always used to like be like, ah fuck, because they gave you guys such like a, a short word count. I think it was like 500 yeah. words. And I remember with your articles, with your articles in particular, you know, whenever it felt like you were reaching your stride, the article would cut. You know what I mean? And I was just like, ah, oh, this fucking sucks. Like you were just getting into the meat of, you know, the thing. So yeah, I mean, I mean, I used to, I, I used to dig your shit at Bubblegum Club. I haven't seen anything of yours there in a while though.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm not with them anymore. They did say they would hit me up with some freelance stuff. So we'll see if that happens. But at the moment, I've been like chilling on the yeah music writing, essentially, because I don't really know what the fuck's happening anymore, to be completely honest. And I don't <laughs> want to like keep writing about the same people over and over again. Like, I've got my favorites. And like, you know, there's some people who I could write about their music at the drop of a dime. But yeah, like I might get back into it at some point when... I'm feeling a little less jaded, I guess. But for now, I'm just enjoying doing this as my journalistic practice, if that makes sense. And then when I feel, when I feel like it, I might do stuff for my blog. And then there's still, I've still got good relationships with some editors. So if I hear anything that like really blows me away, like I might hit someone up, but for now, it's just about trying to make this thing work, you know, trying to make the podcast as good as i can possibly make it and that means doing other work that might not necessarily get as much you know value out of it like creatively or emotionally in that but at the same time it's going to pay the bills so that i can do this and mm. i really need that because this in the long term i feel will be that thing you know it will be the thing that. Hopefully pays my rent at the very least, you know, and because of that, I'll get booked by the things, and when I can get booked uh, for things again, so you know, I'm not too stressed about it in the long term. It's just about for now about trying to achieve some dreams as well. So I need to chill on the well achieve some other dreams. So it's like chill mm-hmm. on that, you know, what's his name, fucking. Uh, I can't remember his name right now. It's so fucking weird. Philip Seymour Hoffman plays him in Almost Famous. Damn it. I because I'm not going to say that Hunter S. Thompson dream. Fuck that. I've never wanted to like live that life. But, like, you know, that journalistic, that music journalist dream, you know, like that one for me is, I think,
1: dead. <laughs> like, yeah. Nah, man. Like it, it, it's crazy. For me, I, I... list the bangs, right? Fuck yes. Thank you
0: yeah no like like that's that's like that dude like influenced me way too much or at least Philip Seymour Hoffman's portrayal of that dude like influenced me far too
1: much for far too long yeah (laughs) I mean dude like it's 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 crazy because I've always also wanted to ask you about your stand-up because I remember you know I I saw there's the one clip on YouTube because I remember at some point you said you do stand-up and there's a clip you posted and I watched that I think you were at UKZN if I'm yeah, not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I remember just before COVID hit, you are actually about to do a tour for end of the fucking world. I think that's what it was called. And then they locked everything down.
0: Yeah, it was just it uh, was just called the end of the world, but now it's called it's not the end of the world. Uh because yeah. I've been mean, rewriting that and yeah, because it's not the end of the world, it's not that sure. But yeah, what were you gonna ask about the stand-up?
1: <laughs> no, I mean I just mean like sort of how cause Cause for me, it's just weird. Like a, a couple of people have asked, for example, like how, you know, how this is, you know, sort of COVID has in as, you know, sort of affected my career. And I'm like, journalistically, almost not at all, you know, cause I just have, you know, even though that's like sort of what I do as a side hustle, like I can interview people over Skype, like it's really not a big deal. And then nine to five wise, you know, I work in digital anyway. So, yeah. you know. but I mean, like sort of with you sort of like as a career freelancer, you know what I mean? I'm not being able to, and, 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 you know, maybe not so much the freelance stuff, like with the comedy as well. Like how, how how have you been able to do that? If at all, you know what I mean? Cause it's not like you can do the zoom thing like every other week. Cause I think people also get like grossed out or tired, tired, tired of that, like after a while.
0: Yeah, like, I haven't even done any Zoom gigs, like, at all. (laughs) And I haven't done any real gigs at all, basically, since COVID hit. It's been super fucking weird. But at the same time, like, it's just, like, one of those things where, for me, I can't, like, put other people at risk like that. For me, like, it's Mm -hmm. just, like, I. other people are doing their things. And, like, I'm over, it. you know, I'm over having the conversation, like, with other people and being, like you shouldn't do this whatever do your thing i'm gonna do my thing and my thing is just chilling but it has been weird like and especially at the moment because like i'm thinking about you know when i do get back on stage about like the fact that i'm gonna be you know months behind all these other people who have actually been on stage and have been practicing in that but what Mm -hmm. i've been doing is just rewriting my show you know at the end of the world is now like Something that each day I work on a little bit more, a little bit more, rewrite some of the jokes, try write some new jokes and just, you know, constantly try and iterate on. it. just a little bit each day, like 20 minutes to half an hour, not even like a ton of work on it so that I'll have this thing ready and polished. And at least in my mind, the words will be there to test for a little while and i've got some ideas about how i want to do that like i don't know if i'll be able to do it so i'm not going to express them just yet but like (laughs) yeah like i'm you know i'm just kind of in hibernation mode at the moment and it's i you know with um lockdown started really focusing on screenwriting a lot more and utilizing that aspect of things so yeah it's like it's been strange cuz the the money situation's been completely fucked like for a long mm. time now. But like yeah, picking up this other work has really helped with that regard. And yeah, man, that's it. It's like so you can't fucking predict a fucking pandemic. That's just the truth of the matter and you have to <laughs> adapt. For me, that's the whole thing. It's like just like I'm an adaptable human being. Like, yeah, I can't do the thing that I love doing, but I will get to do it again eventually. And if I don't, Mm -hmm. like if I die before then, well, whatever. I got to do it for however long I got to do it. I've had a lot of great gigs. I've had a lot of good times. I'm not stressed about it, you know. I do want to do more. I do want to get better at it. I want to eventually, as I get older, you know, really get like refine get refined at stand-up comedy, you know, and like really become good at it. But right now there's fuck all I can you know, morally
1: do about it, essentially, like, or do with a moral conscience. Yeah. So no, It's funny, because I remember there's a a tweet of yours where you said something like, you remember when everyone, like, sort of crapped good luck out. On good luck, yeah. (laughs) And then everyone just performed everywhere else anyway. Yeah, I think that's the kind of, like, because it's something I've been thinking of as well. Like, you know what I mean? It's weird to see, Like, you know, maybe a DJ say, you know, guys, keep safe. You know, sanitize, do blah, blah, blah. And then the next tweet is like, I'll be playing at so-and-so. Exactly. 50 rand per entry. It's it's just the weirdest (laughs) thing ever.
0: Bro, I have lost a lot of respect for a lot of people. But at the same time, I'm like, I understand, you know, like, people have to eat. And also, like, I think people are just trying to... I don't know, like, not, like, let it affect them, even though it's something that you can't, like, you know, not let affect you, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a fucking pandemic. It's Dude. hopefully once in a lifetime, once in a generation thing, you know, mm-hmm. that you have to experience. And it's like, at least it's not a world war, you know? At least you're not, yeah. like... Like, I mean, granted, it's sometimes with the electricity might feel like, you know, we're doing rationing and stuff like that. But, yeah, you don't have to t- switch off your lights at night to avoid being bombed. Like, mm. so to me, the perspective of if I have to stay at home for a year or two and chat to people like this and focus on some other things, like fucking Theroux went to a fucking, like, to Walden and fucking... Mm. Built a fucking cabin for himself. Like, why, why, why do people have to go to the Joel during a pandemic,
1: <laughs> dude? It's it's crazy that you bring up Walden, and that's why. Like, I was just like, dude. So I've um, I think since January, like, it's a book I read, and and it's crazy that you say this. I was tweeting about it like literally a few hours back. When I was 18, I read Walden for the first time. And you know, I went away with the impression that okay, cool, this dude was a misanthrope, like he just didn't like people. But I reread it in January and I've been reading a and he novel. He just likes old, his own company. Yeah, he just likes his own company and it was sort of like intentional isolation. You know what I mean? So he went to the woods and he said, okay, cool. I'm going to formulate what I think about, you know, the world and nature and politics. And, you know, it's not like he wasn't seeing people at all. I think every other week, you know, he'd have, you know, a glass of wine with people. So it was very just, but intentional isolation. And I think that's just been like really dope. It's something I've been trying to emulate because like this year, like I haven't been going out at all. I've just been trying to read more, like to sort of like eat a bit healthier because, Number one, we're in a pandemic, so I can't go out, like, anyway. But number two, I just thought, okay, cool. Like, if I have all this time on my hands, you know, I'd like to, you know, maybe look back in two or three years and say, okay, cool. Like, maybe I wrote a book or, you know, maybe I read more instead of just, like, sort of, like, staying home and, like, jerking off all day. I think that would be <laughs> the worst thing. Yeah, just jerk off once a day. That's that's the key. Now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And I think there's a difference between that kind of isolation, like sort of, you know, where kind of like Theroux took it upon himself to, you know, sort of like go to the woods. And then there's another kind, like, you know, that's deconstructed in Bo Burnham's Inside. Like, Uh, dude, that thing is a masterpiece. Like, it is a masterpiece. (laughs) Because it's so crazy how he talks about you know, millennial isolation and being alone, you know, sort of being on social media the entire Dude, that day. That thing
0: didn't have to have the pandemic to be made. Like, Dude. that's the thing. Like that film stands like could stand alone as something that if the pandemic didn't happen would still reflect on modern society, like mm. completely and utterly, because I feel it's like reflects what it's like to be a creator and to constantly exactly.
1: have the camera on you. mm, mm, mm. And it's crazy. I didn't even know who he was. Like, I mean, I a friend of mine tweeted about it. He said, okay, cool. There's a, there's a dude called Bo Burnham. This thing is perfect. <laughs> and, you know, I thought, okay, cool. Let me give it a look. And then I watched it, I think, two times in a row. That's how good it was. I mean, he called it perfect. I think I, I even said, like, I think it's a little bit better than perfect. Like, that thing is. <laughs> amazing like i don't know i don't know how it is like he slipped through my radar all of these years like i just had no idea who he was
0: yeah man he's someone who i've been a fan of for a very long time like i found out about him after the youtube stuff you know when he was on comedy central and then he had his first show words 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 and like i saw that and like he literally does the whole show and it's all written out behind him like word Mm. for word And, Mm. like, just the jokes he does, just the music that he makes, like, the humor is, like, so on point because, like, I'm not a big fan of musical comedians. Like, there's some that are good, like, Bill Bailey, like, is amazing because he's, like, I think you have to be a good musician, like, Mm. to be able to pull it off. You have to be both a good musician and a good comedian to be able to pull it off. Yeah, I'm not, like, a huge fan of, like, I'm actually not going to say what I was going to say, but (laughs) just... (laughs) the more simple, you know, kind of things where it's like, you know, someone's knows how to play three chords essentially, Mm -hmm. you know, like that to me, just the levels too high, like, you know, like because you've got people like Bill Bailey and Bo Burnham doing what they do. I mean, Tim Minchin's also up there, but like he irritates me a little bit sometimes, but still (laughs) phenomenal, phenomenal fucking talent. Like, but you know, for me out of the musical comedians, it would probably go, you know, that are alive would be Bo Burnham, Bill Bailey, then Tim you know? But yeah.
1: yeah, that's also because they're all really fucking good musicians. Yeah. I mean, so, so I think that's, for me, I think that's the mark of, you know, sort of like any joke. Like, so I, I was reading this Mail and Guardian article where where the dude was kind of breaking down what makes a good piece of comedy. And he said for him, It's something that can live outside of, like, sort of the context you initially view it in. So, for example, if you go to a a stand-up set and, you know, you maybe you look at a stand-up comedian and is, you know, really animated, you might be laughing at just how animated he is and his (laughs) body movement. But if you were just to take the text and read the joke on its own, and if it's still funny, then it's a good piece of comedy. And I think Bo Burnham, like, I I obviously watch that. I think the cinematography is amazing. I still can't believe he shot and edited that himself. You know what I mean? Yeah like when you go to spotify and you listen to the album because i I was literally just playing you know the album on loud volume and then it got to the jeffrey bezos skit and my (laughs) brother like cracking up and he was like who the hell is this like this is funny as hell and you're right like it's just like he's a good musician he's a good comedian like he's just he's just yeah that dude is just dope like yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) cool so enough about uh, other people's art let's talk a little bit about some of your creations and one in particular is the book that you recently put out of a few essays that you've written over the last couple of years on fatherhood uh, mm. it's called oh, wait what is the book called again shit i just blanked on it
1: it's cool it's called your father the hip-hop head
0: yes of course um, yeah, I read it last night and then I read it again this morning and was like, "What I love is like, yeah, it's something you can read probably in an hour, hour and a half, and mm. it's a really honest reflection. Like you really like lay things on the line." And I just want to ask: Is it not? I mean, it's obviously scary to do that, but how do you actually go through that process of putting it down on paper, editing it, refining it, sending it out to other people? Because these were some of them were pieces that you submitted to other places some of it got printed some of it didn't and that whole process of knowing that it's going to be read by other people like is there like is there any tension in your stomach like you know before it goes to print before it
1: gets read because yeah this is some really honest stuff yeah so first of all like thank you for reading the book man yeah i mean there's always that tension like i think Because part, you know, I I think I have to be honest with myself as well. Like, part of this, like, really is, like, sort of, like, emotional pornography. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, man. It's just, like, literally, like, okay, cool. Like, here's what I think. Here's some of the worst impulses I've ever had. And so I think when people ask what the book is about, I always say the book is about fatherhood. But, you know, it's not necessarily about my son. Because that's the one thing I wanted to avoid doing. I didn't want my son to turn 18. And suddenly there's this like entire book that speaks specifically about him. And that's why if you read the pieces, like I talk about mostly my anxiety about parenthood, uh, some of the music I play around my son and stuff like that. There's only one piece that's specifically addressed to him. And it's the last one, um, Colored Boys. But yeah, I mean, it's terrifying, man. Like, (laughs) because I remember when I wrote, I think the, the, the piece like that scared me the most was The last one, the one, you know, that's sort of addressed to my son. Because I'm obviously talking about some personal stuff, like, you know, talking about uh, my time in a psychiatric clinic, you know, talking about just how anxious I was before he was born. And yeah, I think the only reason I write like that is, so I grew up like sort of, I think between 18 and 24, between the time I was 18 and 24 was kind of like, you know, the golden age of the personal essay. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like for real. Like you'd read like really, really like engrossing personal essays. There's this one I read like in twenty fifteen, I think. Yeah, some dude was talking about was talking about his weight gain and you know how he, he he deliberately put on weight for no other reason than he thought, you know, he looked better, like um when he was what most people would classify as fat. And, you know, the other the other pieces of literature I've read, like David Carr's Night of the Gun. David Carr was like a really good uh, seminal journalist, like uh, wrote for the New York Times. But he used to do crack when he was like, um, yeah, yeah, when he was like um, in his 20s and he only stopped because he became a father. And so when he wrote this book, you know, he kind of wrote it as, you know, sort of like investigating the darkest point in his life because there was a lot he didn't remember. So I think, like, stuff like that influences the the type of writing I, I do, because, you know, there are quite a few people who have, like, maybe a particular, you know, maybe you have a guy who studied politics and is a political journalist, or someone who studied finance as a finance journalist you know I, I i just studied journalism you know what i mean so yeah you just read yeah it's not like i'm the smartest dude out there like my two my biggest interest is hip-hop and outside of hip-hop the most important thing for me is the fact that i have a son so you know i'm always looking for ways to interrogate that
0: yeah and you do it really well like within the book and i love that essay that you have about the music that you play in the car because it is one of those things that, I mean, as you get older, you start to obviously interrogate the music you listen to a bit more. And, like, you can understand why you might listen to, like, early title the Creator or something, you know, when it's coming out, you know, because it's mm. anti-authority and this and that. But once you have a kid, you can kind of also figure why you wouldn't necessarily want them listening to, you know, certain lyrics from exactly some of your favorite people
1: yeah i think for me like most of the like it's weird most of what i learned was from hip-hop like sort of like in adolescence um yeah sort of so my my conception of religion like when you think of like the wu-tang and the five percenters and the black israelites and stuff like that that's sort of like how i sort of you know sort of interrogated religion okay. and and so so, so it's crazy. dead yes yes i love dead prayers well i i used to i mean let's get free i think when i was like 17 and 18 was like on heavy
0: it was an an awkward album for a white dude to listen to but i listened to it a lot
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah they were pretty sick like so like dead prayers immortal technique those guys yeah i mean like you said as well i like the example you made of tyler the creator so i used to i think i was like in first year when tyler the creator became a thing like 20 2011 2011 2012 and it was obviously like anti you know anti-authority you listen to these guys and you know but it's but it's something i could never fuck yeah but it's stuff you could never listen to now like because you know um especially tyler you know what i mean because was very cavalier about rape you know sort of like dismembering people you know sort of like used the f-word like quite a lot like he was quite homophobic so yeah I mean it's just with that piece you're talking about the one where you know the, the music I, I I play for my son I remember I was driving him to daycare one day and I was playing like um Shaq West like um Mo Bamba like I got hoes calling and I remember at some point you know because he was playing with his toy and then you know he started vibing to the music and I thought okay, Cooper, what are we actually listening to? You know what I mean? He might not yeah. necessarily understand what it means at the time, but, you know, I think I had I have a bigger responsibility. Like, if he's going to listen to hip-hop, it's just, yeah, I just want to be cautious of how the music I play might influence, like, his language, you know, and how he maneuvers the world. So the piece essentially was talking about how I just became a bit more deliberate, um, you know, maybe play stuff like From the Roots, um, yeah, it's just, yeah, I just, I, I just want to be conscious of what I play around my son. It's kind of like
0: the other side of the coin of Bitch Bad by Lupe Fiasco. Yeah. Like, yeah, like that's kind of what I was getting out of when I was reading that. So I was like, well, yeah, it was just like, this reminds me of that. But it's like, I think it's, it's just one of those, like, also what I enjoy that, like that comes throughout the pieces, Your cause it's not actually just a book about fatherhood. I think, mm. I mean, you're kind of open about it. It's a book about black boyhood as well and what yeah, that means.
1: Because yeah. you
0: interrogate your own
1: upbringing. Yeah. No, man. So, so so, that piece you talk about, like the one about black boyhood, it's it's literally called Black Boy. So, I mean, for the book is literally like essentially I take, you know, a song and, and and that's what I'd name the, you know, um, I'd name a chapter and I'd use the song as an entry point to discuss, you know, something else. So like, that essay you're talking about about black boyhood it's called black boy and i'm sort of paralleling capadonna's black boy with richard wright's memoir of the same name and yeah it starts with you know how me and my twin brother almost burnt the house down when we were like 16 by the way relatable as fuck like (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was some stupid stupid shit so literally we just you know we'd come back from school and we'd just literally start burning crap but one day we almost burnt the house down. But that's how that's how Richard Wright's Black Boy starts like he literally but he burns the family home. And so you know wh- what I found crazy about you know Black Boy in particular like Richard Wright's book is how is the use of the word boy. You know what I mean? It's always yeah. so it's always something he's escaping from when he was a kid. You know what I mean? Um, you know, he was a boy, but he was six years old. And, you know, th- there's this chapter where he talks about how he was an alcoholic when he was six years old. Because literally the men in his neighborhood were like, OK, cool, but you're not a boy, you're a man. You know what I mean? Come chill with men, have some liquor, go feel up on some women. And then when he turned 21, he was kind of like um, he was a cleaner at a post office. And he says, like, the white people, they would never refer to him as a man. They always called him a boy. If he mopped somewhere, they'd deliberately step over it so he'd have to mop again. And I thought it was really cool, like, to to sort of use, you know, that to discuss, like, what boyhood means. It's just sort of something you're always trying to run away from. And it's, you know, at some point, you know, the world actively tells you to run away from the idea of being a boy yeah so it's just I I just wanted to interrogate what being sort of like a black boy means what black boyhood means and then I sort of like um use Capiton as a as a shoehorn because yeah I think one the the song's called Black Boy for one so it was an obvious one but I think Mm -hmm. I like how when you listen to the first verse like you know it's very bravado it's very you know it's a very it's a certain kind of like Masculinity that he's talking about, and it's a masculinity I aspire to at some point, you know, kind of like being gaudy. But it's obviously, you know, something that the older I became, the more I realized, okay, cool, maybe I don't want to be like this at all. um So, yeah, I think I was rambling towards the end, but that's essentially what the essay is about.
0: <laughs> no, rambling is good, and trust me, like, that's the whole point of this whole conversation. <laughs> you're made to talk, you're made to say what's on your mind, man, because yeah, dude. um also, oh, yeah, one of the things I wanted to chat to you about, and it comes up in your book, but you've mentioned it a few times online. And it's one of those things that like, I always feel like must be a little awkward at the current discourse is that both your parents are cops, right? Or like, I know your dad's a cop. Like, I don't know so much about your mom, but I realized when I was reading your book today that your mom's also in the police force.
1: Yeah, so my dad's recently retired. He retired last year, but essentially both of them are, they're police,
0: yeah. (laughs) So what's that childhood like growing up with police as parents, especially... Did you understand the context, like with regards to you know apartheid, and that this this was a new thing that your parents Mm -hmm. could be cops, and Mm. or like was that not even a part of the thing? And then also were they like quite strict?
1: Ah, so maybe towards so 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 I'll answer the the last question first. Were they strict? The answer is like hell yeah, um, and it's something (laughs) I talk about like in my upcoming book. So I'm writing a book about my dad's thirty years as a cop. That's coming out in September via Blackbird Books. But yeah, man, it was weird, Mm -hmm. weird, weird. Because my, so like I said earlier on, like my, my parents were both police officials. But yeah, so there was always like kind of, there were these like rituals that were sort of like dedicated to our safety. Like one, we always had to come back home, you know, before it was dark. But also there's this, There's this way sort of like, because once you're a police official, like I think there's a way you sort of like read, you kind of like look, especially I think like black, you know, sort of young black men, you kind of read them as menacing. So I remember there was a point where when we got into hip hop, we loved sagging our pants and my parents thought it was the worst thing because they were like no your appearance also matters you know you can't look like a criminal because people will think you're a criminal and then you'll get stopped by the cops you know what i mean so yeah. it was just like kind of like this weird childhood like i think up until the time i was like 23 i had to come back home like before it was dark And, you know, when I got to 23, I obviously got a job. So, you know, that was, that became like impossible. And that's when sort of like things eased up. But my parents were really like super, super, super strict. But two, I think the most, the other awkward thing is, you know, obviously grew up on hip hop, you know, that was anti NWA. <laughs> okay. NWA, exactly. You know what I mean? So carrying that sentiment and then, you know, having your parents be like police was just like the weirdest thing ever. Yeah, I think it was just like a weird childhood, just in the sense that my parents were really strict. And I obviously, like I said, carried this sort of like weird cognitive dissonance because, you know, on one hand, like I'm listening to hip hop, but just besides hip hop, man, I think if you if you turn on the TV you see how how cops can move in South Africa they move funny. Yeah. You know on one end you know both your parents are cops you know and that's what's taking you through school that's what's keeping the lights on. Yeah, it was weird. It was it was weird. <laughs> and how do you feel about it now? Um it's something I it's actually like I discuss in my book. I'm going to tease it out a bit but yeah, I think it's weird so just like my dad for example is called you know, he got the nickname of being like, they gave him the nickname, the top cop of Soweto, because, you know, he was kind of like this honest, you know, sort of like cop, solved like really high profile murders. And he was also a hawk at some point. But it's weird, man. So I remember at some point, when I was writing the first draft of my book, I was writing about how my dad solved like a murder, and it was a cold case, you know, how my dad is this amazing cop. And I remember, you know, it was the week that Nathan Julius was killed um, in El Dorado oh, wow. Park. Yeah. And yeah. it was just, oh man, I don't know what to do with this. You know what I mean? Cause, and I think that kind of changed the direction my book was going. Cause in the book, essentially it started out just as like a biography of my dad. And now it's turned, it turned into something else, just like a meditation sort of like on violence, state violence, um, you know, police. Cause also, you know, where did this idea of police come from? The idea that, you know, we can give the state power to kind of like should be ready for go and go. stuff like that, right? yes, yes,
0: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thing, so you understand these things like on that level as well, as well as yeah. like understanding the personal side of it and knowing like your parents' motivation and knowing that they're doing some good in the community, they're doing a lot of good in the community, but at the same time, they're a part of the system that's you know, rather destructive a lot of the time. And that's, like you said, like cops move funny in South
1: Africa and not just in (laughs) South Africa. Yeah, I think just the world over. Because, I mean, at some point I was reading, who's the guy who made, this is crazy, why have I forgot? David Simon, the guy who did The Wire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the book that The Wire was based on is just, is is, is a 600-page book called Homicide. And he literally followed, like, detectives in Baltimore for, I think it was two or three years. And he was looking at like what it means to be like a detective in Baltimore, but like sort of like being a detective, like sort of in a crumbling institution. And I think for me that just the conclusion I came to is just sort of like, okay, cool. The state is obviously like decided that they're going to make like sort of like police, you know, cause, cause, cause police are sort of like a function of the state, they're an arm of the state. And just anytime you give like the state, like, you know, sort of power to kind of like dictate what it is people can do and can't do. I think you see the application at some point is always just like, goes like bananas. Like, I think if you remember when lockdown started, I don't know whether you remember, there were cops who would literally say, okay, cool. You're not even allowed to be in your yard. You're, you know, After curfew, you're supposed to be inside the house and they'd be pointing a gun at you. And that only happens because, you know, like they're, they're a symbol of what we've come to accept. Andrew Fall, I think, if I remember, has a book about policing called Behind the Badge, or is it Identity? Yeah, I forget which book it is. I think it could be Behind the Badge where he says, like, most people who became cops don't even, didn't even want to be cops, you know. Anyway, someone just gave them a gun, they'd finished them a trick and they thought, okay, cool, like this is a job, like any other job. And I think the one good point he makes, I think it was him in any case, is just like policing only happens under the context that a community will allow. You know what I mean? So if you look at how Santin is policed, for mm-hmm. example, and how Alexander is policed, I swear you'd see like two different instances of policing. If a police, like if a constable probably like rolls down the street and he sees a kid like smoking a J in Sandin, he probably like gives him a lecture, you know, tells him, asks him where he lives. If he says it's around the area, tells him to put down the road and fuck off. But if the same thing happens in Alexandra, you know, that dude might die. So, yeah, it's just looking at, you know, those two, you know, situations. It's, it's, yeah, it's pretty weird.
0: Yeah. But the problem there is obviously the community doesn't necessarily have that much control or power because you do also have other issues, like stuff like you've you've mentioned, like on your timeline and I think in some of your writing before is, yeah, the violence in Cape Town, like, Mm. and it's a very real issue. I mean, it's not just in Cape Town. so like growing up knowing that there's all this violence around you and that you know your parents are risking their lives quite often how how, what was that like like how did you feel like were you ever worried like because i know your parents are very strict with you and worried about you know Mm -hmm. you staying out late at night but what were your thoughts and concerns
1: so so it's crazy that you asked that because that stuff that that anxiety on my end only came later um so my dad was like pretty popular you know what I mean he was one of those cops like he because he solved like some really high profile cases there was this one where a generations actress like sort of like killed her kid like in some sort of like oh wow yeah in a fit of rage some satanic shit and my dad solved that case but it's weird like I only worried about my dad I think when I got into my 20s Because I always just thought he was a cop, you know what I mean? And he worked late. But I think when I got into my 20s, I wanted to understand, um, you know, what kind of police official he was. So I'd regularly Google him because I know there were articles about him. And it's weird. Like, this literally happened in 2017. I literally woke up one day. I was scrolling through News 24. And then, you know, my dad's name pops up. Like, literally, I hadn't even searched for him. And I looked and then it was like, oh, no, someone tried to kill my dad. Like, there were death threats against him and so it's it's the type of stuff he never really discussed so only in my 20s did I really you know sort of like appreciate how dangerous the job was for for my dad but with him I think because he's also like really like a macho like sort of man's man he's all like yeah no one's gonna kill me bro just like relax um good attitude to have yeah sometimes it's hard to worry about someone who, who takes that position like nah chill no one's gonna kill me (laughs) so yeah but I mean to 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 answer your question yeah man like I think I'm really glad my dad retired even when I was interviewing my mom for this book that's coming out like later on this year I asked her how she felt like when my dad retired and she said like relieved those were her words she said like at some point because she they got married when my when my mom was 26 and she said like a few years after they got married like maybe two or three years because of like um the volume of death threats my dad got. She thought, okay, cool. At some point I'm going to be, you know, a widow. At some point they're going to kill my husband and I'm going to have to raise my kids on my own. And so she carried that the entire time my dad was a detective. And it's only last year um, when my dad sort of retired that she felt like, okay, cool. She could breathe again. But I mean, like, just hearing that, like, hearing that my mom had essentially been holding her breath for like close to 30 years. Cause she thought like at any day that might be the day my dad died. Yeah. I'm just really relieved he's retired. Um, so yeah, I, the, the anxiety isn't really there anymore. Cause my mom works in a different department. She's not like on the field. It's my dad who I used to worry about. Cause he used to, you know, sort of like be on the field you know investigate people but now that is retired like yeah the anxiety is pretty much gone
0: how's your parents relationship with you when it comes to like mental health stuff because if you don't mind me talking about it because you did mention earlier and you've written about the fact that you stayed in a mental institution and that you're pretty open about it online as well that you deal with depression and like you know the, the stuff that comes with that so mm. what like what's your relationship like with them when it comes to that? Because I can imagine with your dad being, you know, a macho kind of guy, maybe it might be difficult or how's that relationship?
1: I mean, strangely enough, they've, they've always been pretty cool. I think I like my parents for the fact that... So it's weird, they're not the kind of parents who... But I mean, to be fair, like I don't think like anyone their age is saying like, okay, cool, you know, I understand you might be anxious. Do you need to see like a therapist to talk about, you know, yeah, sort of. because they've been through some shit. <laughs> like... Yeah, your relationship trauma. My dad's always just been like, whatever, my mom and dad have always been like, whatever you need, just let me know. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. It's, yeah, like, I mean, my, my parents are pretty cool, man. It's, it's crazy because I haven't been as honest with them as I have in my writing. <laughs> my dad read, my mom and dad read Metanoa. And then when they, you know, my first sort of like self-published book. And yeah. I was also talking about like mental illness there and sort of my difficulties with that and they were like dude but why didn't you tell us i mean you didn't tell us you know it was bad to this extent so i think they they help in as much in as much as i allow them to help you know what i mean because i don't i I obviously don't want to freak them out as well you know they're my parents i don't want to tell them like every other day that okay i'm feeling anxious again I'm depressed again, you know what I mean? But they do know I see a shrink, for example. They know I was seeing a shrink this year and they absolutely supported it. I think the one thing that trips them up is sort of like when I write about stuff without telling them. And I think that's kind of fair because they're just like, okay, dude, you wrote this, published it, and then and now the world knows something about you <laughs> that we didn't know. And I think that's what trips them up.
0: Yeah, what's weird for me is like, my mom, I don't think has read much of my stuff, thankfully, because I said a lot <laughs> of shit in the Durban is Yours days. But uh, my girlfriend's parents did read some stuff that I wrote that made life very awkward. So, oh, yeah, shit. it's one of the it's one of the problems when it comes to being, yeah, like a comedian and a writer. Like, could, mm. you know, you share lots of stuff about yourself and a lot of embarrassing and personal stories. And now, for the future like that's there like your future girlfriends you know your future like their you know their parents can google you and see that stuff so it's always for me like i don't know it's kind of why like i don't tweet like as much as i used to like the way i used to and like yeah like why you can't find Durban is yours anymore it's just to kind of just be like a little bit harder for people like you got to listen to the podcast if you want to cancel me you actually have to like <laughs> listen to an hour long conversation <laughs> and no one's got like that kind of patience you know if they hate you no one's going to listen to you talk for an hour if they hate you so that that's the thing mm. for me it's i'm just hiding all my like fucked up stories and bad opinions in audio form so yeah people
1: <laughs> people can't find them as easily it's crazy, man. Like I, I don't think you've you've ever said anything that would warrant being cancelled. I know a couple of people <laughs> had a problem with that article you wrote about Montle, I think like two or three years back. But it's crazy, man. I don't think you've done anything that's cancelable. It's weird.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that Montle thing turned out into a lot of weird vibes, but whatever like that's uh one of those things where it's just like i hate the fucking industry you know like i hate everyone involved and everything that's happening right now <laughs> like when i was going through all that shit like it was just like but yeah man like that's also the thing it's you live and you learn like when it comes to this thing eh? it's uh i don't know like i definitely don't miss <laughs> like the music journalism days i'm not gonna lie like i miss the going you know, I miss the days of actually going to gigs and, like, watching bands and watching mm-hmm. artists and, like, you know, writing about nights out and, like, those sorts of things was, like, my vibe, you know? Like, I loved festival reviews. Like, those were my absolute favorite things to write. But when it get, comes to, like, writing about individual people and then, like, like for me, like, a weird one was cool Kulkat. You know, he's someone who... Yeah got my foot on the door at noisy, you know, pitching because him and I, like we knew each other, like from Durban and like, we got introduced. I can't remember. I think maybe even through Roger, but like, mm-hmm. yeah, like, you know, like we bounced around, we chatted, like dug each other's vibe and I interviewed him for noisy and wrote about him a bit and then even wrote about boys and bucks for harp track for the, uh, the print edition, And sure, then, sure. you know, that shit happens. Like, Mm. you know, his whole vibe happens and it's like this weird thing where it's like you've got this weird emotional attachment to like people's come up sometime because you're excited about them and want them to do well. And it's like the same thing with other people where, yeah, you write about them and then all of a sudden people are inboxing you stories about them and you're like, I really wish I'd
1: known this before I wrote the fucking article. (laughs) Exactly. No man like i think t- to your point earlier on about like how so it's crazy like right now like just how i write stuff is like i literally write about music and film that i like so i'll never give anyone a bad review i'll never if someone says review this i'll say let me give it a watch and if i hate it i'll i'll turn it down but even then like the one thing i try not to do is like one opine on on sort of like the person i'm i'm interviewing like so for example if yeah you know if uh, let me just make an example if you gave me a Hunter S Thompson book i talk about the merits of the text talk about some of the other stuff he's read that i've enjoyed but yeah i th- th- there's a piece there's a piece i wrote a few years and i don't want to I-, I don't want to say which one it is cuz a person still follows me like i interviewed <laughs> someone and same type of thing happened like once the thing was published like i got a few DMs like ah but this dude's a piece of shit and i'm just like well, that would have been nice to know before I wrote the fucking thing. You know what I mean? And I had no idea. But now, you know, it was just like, okay, cool. You know, you're not as progressive as you think. And I'm just like, guys, but I had no idea. I had no idea he did the things you t- you're telling me about. So that's also kind of like the landmine I try to avoid completely. And that's why I think like I'm I'm writing less and less. Um, Yeah. Yeah, because you just don't know
0: who's fucking problematic anymore. Like, I know I've been problematic. Like, I know that for a fact. But, like, I'm learning. I'm growing. But I also don't know, like, what other people's dirt is. So it's, like, yeah, it's a weird thing of you're you contributing to the PR campaign for abusers sometimes. And that is hard shit to live with. But it's also, I mean, you just look at, like, the history of music writing so much shit was actually written about with, like, reverence, you know? Like, I remember (laughs) fucking reading FHM, and they're talking about Marilyn Manson, like, putting ham on a deaf girl's head and peeing on her. And, like, this is, like, a big joke, you know, like, at the time. And it's like, oh, how crazy is Marilyn Manson? And now (laughs) that you hear, like, all the stories about him, and it's like, well, who the fuck is surprised by any of this, you know? But it's (laughs) just, like thankfully the cultural context for a lot of stuff has changed and it has like woken shit up. But that's also something that you've at least been super honest about is that like, you're trying to be progressive, but you're still like, you're not like as progressive as like other people would like you to be, I guess sometimes. Cause you are like quite honest, like online, yeah. you know, with your shit, you know, how you actually feel about things. And I think like, it's so important you know for culture that we do do that so that we're still like honest because yeah other people might call you out for it but at the same time like either you're going to learn from it or you're going to be like nah
1: this is actually what i think and feel now nah, i think that's crazy because okay so two things one i was like talking to i was talking to a crush of mine i think like last week and the one thing she said is just like dude like you're just so annoying on twitter that's the thing <laughs> <laughs> i've gotten that before yeah, because she was just like, I can't place you, cause like you know, on one end you seem like you should like you'll tweet something and I'm like he gets it, and then you'll tweet something else and I'm like, but he should know better, and I don't <laughs> know, man. Like, I think for me, just like you say, like I always try to be as honest as possible, and I think you know part of the problem is actually the tone. Like I know, like I can't get like pretty wild on Twitter, but two, like it's just like, ah, man, I don't know, man. Like I don't, like for me. It, if I agree with someone, like then I'm gonna what's this? If I agree with something, then I'm gonna say it. If I don't, you know, then you're then you're pretty much gonna, you're pretty much gonna know like I don't agree with something. But too, yeah, like that's why I think like I like taking sort of like breaks from Twitter because like it's also weird because something will be happening on my timeline and I'm trying to piece things together, but I've been blocked by too many people, <laughs> like, <you> know, <laughs> like to, to figure out what it is. Oh, I know that too well. Oh. so yeah I think I think I usually say it like ah oh, man I can tell something's happening but I can't I can't really tell what the crux of the matter is because too many of you have blocked me so I don't know I think I'm just I think I'm just gonna shut up my publisher told me to um shut up once in a while and I think I'm gonna take her advice because also <laughs> I mean I think like wh- why should I you know publish every thought I've ever had I think that's also why like I sort of it's why I enjoy Twitter, but it's why I hate it as well. Like, I mean, it's one thing if I say, okay, cool. Like I watch Bo Burnham's thing, you know, it's really amazing. It's another if I say, I don't know, oh damn, like I sniff tested my underwear. Check <laughs> the- you know what I mean? It's just like, why should I tweet every single thought I have?
0: It's also like the thing that, so my, one of my biggest complaints that I have with all of this is that they're selling our emotions like to advertisers. Essentially. Mm. you know we're, we're getting worked up we're sharing ourselves we are like sharing the deepest darkest some shit that people like share on the internet is insane like i would never share that story with a therapist and you see them you know, busy putting it on twitter for free but it's not for free because just underneath someone telling you about the time they shoved an hourglass up their ass is a fucking ad for fucking i don't know for watchers you know like it's just like, <laughs> no, no. It's that's what i hate me. is that they've monetized like us and we're giving them
1: the content <laughs> <No>. <laughs> i'm just laughing at the fact that you say people tweet stuff you'd never even tell a therapist like yeah that's the craziest shit ever like i'm i'm I'm, always surprised at just how open people are on Twitter. And I think, sorry to go back to this, I think Bo Burnham mentions it at some point on Inside, where he's on the floor and is talking and he's like, yeah, maybe in a few years we'll all look back and say it might have been an era to kind of like, you know, just sort of like make Twitter, you know, what it essentially is right now, like a vomitorium where you literally just, you know, say (laughs) everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever felt. I think like, you know, maybe 10, 20 years from now, we might say, okay, cool. Maybe we acted in error. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that's
0: like just that's what history is. It's literally us looking back going, oh, fuck, probably shouldn't have done that, hey?
1: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, man, I don't know. like, But yeah, I think, like I said earlier on, I think what frustrates me about Twitter is that I want to leave, but I just. I've just had to admit that I enjoyed way too much to ever leave. So that stuff you say about, you know, people talking like some wild stuff. I think there was a guy today at like 12, like just midday, he was talking about, ah, you know, I choke my girl and I do this and (laughs) it's in my mouth. And I'm just like, dude, the sun is out. Aren't you at work? You know what I mean? But that's also what gives it (laughs) its appeal. (laughs) That is definitely gives it its appeal. Okay, sure. so I've got a listener question. Well,
0: I've got a listener with a bunch of questions. I'll pick some of them. Uh, they're okay. called Simp Slayer. Which is like great name. So Simp Slayer. Also, actually, a pretty good question considering how you know so much of your current identity is based on fatherhood, and like from your writing, I kind of have an understanding of how life was before that. But I'm going to ask what this uh, person says here. They say. If you did not have commitments to others, how would you live your life differently?
1: Ah, nah. Like, I I, I know how I'd live. I'd literally be a nomad. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, I think the one thing, I don't want to say that sucks. I mean, like, but, but the one thing about sort of like being someone's parent is that when I found I was going to be, you know, a father, that my son was going to arrive, I thought, okay, cool. The one thing I want to offer him is stability. Because that's yep. the one thing I had, you know, we lived in the same house, never moved around. So it's like, okay, well, damn, I have to buy an apartment. So I bought an apartment where we live right now. And it's sort of like, that's our base. That's where we live. That's where me and him live. But yeah, I mean, if I didn't have to do all of that, like I, I probably would never have bought an apartment. I wouldn't have bought a car because I was really happy. Like, Yeah, living, actually like, just... Yeah, it reminded me of something I was going to
0: ask you was about that, because you always tweet about how much you would like, say, like, don't fucking buy property when you're
1: young. Oh, it's the worst, man. It's like the fucking worst. Because it's literally like, I think that's the biggest mistake I've I've made. And I think like most bad ideas, like it seemed like most bad decisions, it seemed like a good <laughs> idea at the time. It's like, okay, me and my son are going to live here. You know, I'm going to get married to his mom's, you know, and then, you know, that didn't Work. So um, like it's just literally like now I'm stuck with this house. It's like I can't sell it, like I have to wait at least five years if I want to make any sort of profit from it. All of the upkeep, like if something breaks, like literally I have to redo my entire bathroom now. The shower door is like banged up, there's a problem with the lighting, you know, the plumbing is sort of giving me problems. Whereas, like, if I was renting, I'd literally call up the landlord and be like, Hey man, I think you need to fix this. But also like, I mean, there's no way you can scale down because if if, let's say I were to lose my job, it helps if I'm renting because then I can freelance and then maybe get a place that's like 4K instead of like maybe my 7K bond. But, you know, with the house, it is what it is. So if I didn't have all of that, I think I'd just be a nomad in Cape Town this year, in Zimbabwe next year, you know what I mean? And it wouldn't really matter what it is that I was doing as long as I made enough money, you know, to kind of like put a roof over my head and like put some grub in my stomach
0: yeah that's uh when i said like you know dreams have changed that's that's very much like in line with the the current dream that i have it's just like mm. whether i'm doing comedy or writing or whatever like i want to as soon as we can like reasonably bounce around a bit i want to get the fuck out of here and just experience
1: a bit more of the world you know Mm, mm, mm. now that makes sense man like it's what i want to but yeah obviously can't do that because hey. i have a kid to look after
0: <laughs> yeah but you'll eventually be able to take him with you on various adventures as time goes 100%. on so yeah. it'll be a vibe okay so they ask uh uh do you th- well i'm gonna also mention i know that you kind of address this in your book but they ask do you think it's possible to live with no- uh to live with no regrets
1: Ah, absolutely not. I think only cowards and serial killers, like, live without regret. <laughs> yeah, it's a sort of kind of psychopathy. Like, why do you mean you have no regrets? I think I think I even said it explicitly in, in the book. Like, no, I have plenty of regrets. Like, I was a liar. Yeah. I stole from people. Um, no, man, like, I have plenty of regrets. I, I think, you know, people who don't have a capacity for regret, tend to enjoy their lives quite a bit because it, it doesn't matter like if you if you fuck your life up or anyone's life up it's just part of the universe's plan like no man like only serial killers and psychopaths don't feel regret i have plenty but of i them. think
0: but i think the philosophy is to try not to like regret anything that you've done in terms of like you can feel remorseful and feel like yeah shit i shouldn't have fucking done that but at the end of the day like you know if you didn't do those things you wouldn't be the person that you are today and you wouldn't have Mm -hmm. learned all these lessons and all of that so like that's what i understand and people are like you know don't regret anything but like Mm -hmm. i don't think like that should be a thing to like just treat people like shit and like because that's the problem is like you know when people are like no regrets it's like just do, like, dangerous, reckless shit with no regard for, like, what happens to anyone else. Like, I promise you, like, Mark Zuckerberg probably doesn't regret too much, you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine him or Jeff Bezos regret, like, anything.
0: Yeah, they're just like, I made all the right decisions all the time, forever.
1: Yeah. Yeah no man no no I get what you mean and I was obviously being uh, a bit facetious but <laughs> yeah I mean obviously I still don't think it's, it's it's possible to live without regret but I agree with what you just said like I mean if if something bad happens I think you know you should learn from it it needs to have some sort of utility or lesson so you don't do it again but I think regret also serves like a a really good function like the same as shame you know what I mean yeah. if you do something once and you know you realize you messed up, maybe you, you, you know, lost a friend, lost a really good, like, um, lover and you regret that. Yeah. It might be the motivation you need not to, you know, fuck up again.
0: Yeah. Like, unfortunately I've heard the thing said a few times, like in different ways, but like, you know, the people you meet in your thirties, like you have to thank like all the people they fucked over in their twenties for like how rad they are now. Oh shit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, 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 100%. That's that's crazy that you say that because I was reading something similar. Like it was an article about how essentially like the, you know, the theme of the article was, it was on psychology today, how we're all sort of like a villain in someone else's story, like as, you know, as yeah. woo as that sounds. But yeah, like it would, be, it would be interesting like if you spoke to someone who knew you in your early 20s and someone who knew you in your early 30s and they were making the same point that you'd be like, So you're still the same person because you obviously saw the growth like it was linear for you. You messed up, you learned from it, you changed into a new person. But if you were, let's say, like a crack addict who stole from people in their 20s and then you come back at 30s and you're reformed and, you know, you're kind of this motivational speaker, you know, the person who had the last piece of contact with you as a crackhead would be like, ah, nah, he's trying to score some, you know what I mean? So it's just a bit crazy that you mentioned that. Yeah, because I was reading an article about that, like literally, like I think last week. (laughs)
0: Uh, I mean, that is the unfortunate thing. It's like, you know, with some people, you get a bit too close and you know a bit too much and then you can't trust them ever again. You know, it's just, but you know, other people can because they just don't have those experiences and those people have also grown and they've learned. But unfortunately, you've got some shitty fucking memories that make it pretty hard to get over.
1: Yeah, 100%, 100%. Cool. So the
0: next question I'm going to pick from this, literally just like essay of questions, like this could have been the whole interview, to be honest, but uh, what was the greatest peer
1: pressure you, well, what is the greatest peer pressure you feel as an adult? To be a good father. And I'll tell you why I said that. So it's crazy. I, I, I was telling the mother of my child, my ex at some point that the weirdest thing is for me. So I, I never grew up sort of like in an environment where dudes who had kids ran away. It's from okay. my uncles, from my father, you know, from my grand. There was always like, okay, cool. Like if you, if you had a kid, you stay, you take care of your kid. And I remember when I told everyone I was going to be a parent, even my friends who I had, who had kids, they were just like, dude, you cannot run. You know what I mean? If you're thinking of running, you cannot run. You have to stay. You have to take care of your son. And this is beyond just like sort of like feeding him and clothing him. You know, you actually actually have to be able to talk to your son because the worst thing is like, you know, you take care of your son financially and he turns like 13 and you realize you know nothing about him. So I think it helped that I had friends like that because, you know, I think I was just swimming in their slipstream, man. I'd I'd sort of Mm -hmm. like observed how they were like raising their kids when they found out I was going to be a father, they said, okay, cool, dude, like, we know the biggest thing you're worrying about now is money, but yeah, maybe that's not the most important thing, just be there, well, not just be there, like, be there for your kid, like, actually treat him like a human being, you know, find out what his interests are, what his personality type is, and so, yeah, I think that's been the biggest sort of peer pressure, like, the healthiest sort of peer pressure, the fact that I had friends who actually, like, gave a crap about their kids and you know so when they found out i was going to be a father they were like ah dude you're gonna have to do more than send money here (laughs) well that
0: is dope though because it's like that's not the typical south african story i mean my dad like wasn't around so like i know Mm. all too well like the struggles that like you know a single parent goes through when they have to and it's like it's one of those things that like obviously frustrates me the most about south african men whether they're black or white it's like they they like to bail on their responsibilities but was there ever like a time because you know you're saying they were like you know if you're thinking about it but what were you thinking about like was there a thing like of like fuck how do i get
1: out of this or like, (laughs) (laughs) no i like how you frame the question so the answer is no i mean so 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 i think never running away But I remember I was like sort of like anxious even the day my son was born because people told me, no, don't worry about it. As soon as he's in your arms, um, (laughs) you'll feel this overwhelming. Yeah, you'll feel. And they lied, dude. I I remember when they put my son in my hands, I was terrified because I was (laughs) looking at him and I was thinking, okay, cool. He can't even lift his head unassisted. It was just like, oh, cool. Here's a human being who's completely At the mercy of my care. If I decide that I don't want to do this, you know, like he's in very significant trouble. So I I never felt like running away, but I will. I I think I've always been honest with this. I even told his mother as well, like throughout the entire pregnancy, she was like, How do you feel? Are you happy? I'm like, Yeah, I'm obviously happy. But the one thing I fear the most is like, like the one thing I feel the most is anxiety. Like, you know, because this, you know, our son is literally at the mercy of our care. We could literally like, whatever we want and then just messes life up forever and i think you know if if there's anything i still feel it's that like even you know when we're just chilling sometimes i think you know let's say i've had a bad day i wonder if my mood is contagious if i've maybe snapped at him and then i think okay cool like you know because kids have nowhere to run to you know what i mean kids are the only people who love unconditionally because they have no choice and I think that's when I feel the worst, like sort of when I snap at my son and then, you know, two minutes later, he wants to cuddle with me. I'm like, uh, oh, you could really mess your son's life up if you choose to. So I think it always helps to give pause. And that's why at the end of the day, what I usually do is just like I tell you, like, "Ah, oh, dude, how many times did I shout? If I shouted, how many times did I tell my son I love him? You know what I mean? I think that kind of thing helps.
0: Yeah, man, that reflection is so important because I think it's not even like a matter of like you know some parents are shitty on purpose you know some pe some parents aren't even shitty like by technical standards or whatever but they're not necessarily <laughs> emotionally there you know like they are doing yeah. all the things they are trying their hardest but you know they're not necessarily being reflective in that way because they're just doing what's been passed down to them which was mm. shitty parenting and exactly yeah I, I understand i mean the reason why like you know like i don't want to have kids is because, like, of that anxiety, man. Like, of that whole thing of, like, I am responsible for your entire being. Like, you're going to mm-hmm. become who you're going to become. But, like, some of that is on me. And, like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a lot of pressure. A lot of responsibility. I'm trying to avoid it for as long as possible. We'll see. We'll see how that goes.
1: Don't, <laughs> so I'm going to ask
0: you another question here uh why were you given your name and does it have a special meaning
1: cool so my name rofiwa means given gift um sort of like gift yeah i don't know whether my dad i know i know my dad picked my like our uh, english names from from a hospital book i think like he just picked them from a book of names so like i have a really crappy english name like, my, my english name is humphrey okay um <laughs> But I know, <laughs> yeah, I know my, yeah, terrible. So yeah, he called me Rafiwa, that means gift. And then my twin brother is Mpo, and that also means gift. And yeah, my dad was very deliberate with those because he was like, oh, <laughs> you know, we're twins. So, I mean, there's obviously that going on, but he just thought the idea that, you know, they were expecting one kid and, you know, we actually turned out to be twins was like a gift from God. So yeah, that's kind of like the meaning behind my name.
0: Oh, cool. I literally had no idea, so i'm glad I'm glad some slayer put that question in I'm gonna ask this last one because I think it's interesting, considering all the conversation we've been having. Uh, mm-hmm. Would you ever want to change your gender at least for a day?
1: Ooh, that's an interesting one, like it's ooh, let me think mm, that I'm gonna say no, like oh, um, wow. And 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 I'll tell you why I say no. I think it's it's it, it's it's what's this like when whenever you look whenever you look at you know just sort of like the discourse around like what's okay cool I I just want to trip over my words, so let me just put this properly. That, so the answer is no, I wouldn't change my gender. But two, but the reason I wouldn't change my gender is because I wouldn't need to change my gender to know what it's like to be a woman, or you know to be queer. In the sense that you know, when I've read the reports, like when you read like people's accounts, you know what I mean. It, it, it's, 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 it's yeah, man, it's pretty harrowing. Some of the stuff you read, it's, 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 it's crazy sometimes when you talk to like an ex or like a girlfriend at the time who'll tell you like, okay, cool, like maybe I just walked out of the club to your car, but I had like car keys in my hands in case someone tried yeah. to feed up on me. You know what I mean? And 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 that's so harrowing, man. Like it's it's the craziest thing ever. And so, yeah, the only reason I wouldn't change my gender is because, like, I've read accounts of what it's of what it's like to be like a woman, to be queer, to be trans, and you know, like the the one thing you know, people who aren't like straight male able bodied usually, usually says like, yeah, you know, it's the worst because you're always fearing for your safety in some other manner. So, so that's why I wouldn't because I I don't think I'd need to to know how harrowing it is. I mean, I think like. I would want
0: to just because of the the good parts about being yeah. a woman, you know. <laughs> like I would that that that's why I would you know be interested in it. But you actually reminded me. I don't know if you know the Chris Rock joke about like yeah, like there's not a white dude in here who would trade his place like for uh, oh, the black shit. guy. Like, and like it's, you literally reminded me of that. It's like it is that whole thing of like. Yeah, like, there's hierarchies, and you kind of, like, understand that, like, well, you, I think you don't always understand it. Because, like, when I first heard that joke by Chris Rock, like, I didn't really, like, agree with it. I was like, mm. no, man, I would want to be black. Being black sounds great, you know, because, like, I grew up listening to hip-hop, and, like, you know, not necessarily really listening to hip-hop. Because <laughs> like, mm. if I'd listened closer, I would have <laughs> understood that, yeah, like... The white experience and the black experience are so different and Mm -hmm. like as you're saying like it's the same thing i guess when it comes to yeah gender and when it comes to yeah being queer or non-binary that those experiences are so vastly different that that's also the thing is like i don't even think a day in someone else's body or like in a different body or whatever would even give you a decent understanding but it would be harrowing right yeah yeah (laughs) absolutely cool uh so that's there are a few more questions here but i think I'm, I'm gonna leave it at that uh with this upcoming book when did you say that it's coming
1: out again september so we're looking for september there thereabouts. but yeah it's gonna come out via blackbird books and it's called a man a fire a corpse
0: no oh, snap and this is your first like non-self-published thing or am i wrong there
1: yeah it's the first non self published one so i've i think i've, I've self published 3 this the, the 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 one i've just released is the third one and then i've been published in other like books of essays like i know yeah. there was a, yeah but i mean this will be my first book as in like you know with a with a publisher, so yeah, pretty excited
0: it actually does make me want to just ask you why the self publishing like why why are you so driven to just put your work out there, regardless of if you know no
1: one else is going to do it for you um, I think i've, I've like just self publishing I've always just done out of like necessity, um so with this. With Metanoa, I know I tried to I tried to shop a couple of the short stories to a few publications and they just were like, not nah, not good enough. And so I thought, okay, cool. I'm just going to put those together and make them into a book. But why did you not worry that like they weren't good enough? Why were you
0: like, oh, I'm just going to publish this anyway?
1: At the time, I think I just wanted to, I just wanted, you know, my, my work out there in the world. You know what I mean? Because I think a okay. lot of people knew me as a journalist at the time. And I wanted to, to be taken seriously as a fiction writer. And so Metanoa was an attempt. It was an experiment at that. Um, I just thought, okay, cool. If no one's going to publish this, then I'm going to do it myself. But they were actually right because the stories were crap. You know what I mean? I shouldn't <laughs> publish them. Um, and then the second one was called The Full Panty. That, that one was just a book of satire. I wrote it even under a pseudonym. And then there was another one I followed up with with pumlani yeah i self-published a book with pumlani like r.i.p may rest in peace um, I myself yeah. published a book with pumlani and then this now the fourth one so it's always been out of necessity with the pumlani thing we were just like sort of messing around me and him we used to write together like i'd send him a piece he'd send me another one and then it was just like let's put this together and self-publish it but yeah it's always out of necessity um more than anything
0: but would you say that because of all that experience that you've had self-publishing, it's led to this
1: Blackbirds, like, thing? I, not really, because how that happened is I, I, I watched this, a friend of mine, Sifir, um Tim, who wrote the Born oh, yeah. to White book. Yeah, yeah. So he, I was telling him, nah, like, I, you know, because I actually approached Tabiso, Sis Tabiso, the publisher, because I wanted to write this book of fiction, like a novel. And so Celia sent her my short stories and she was like, okay, cool. I'll read through the short stories. You know what I mean? And yeah, she wasn't crazy about the short stories. And so how she eventually gave me a book deal is like, we obviously followed each other. I was on her radar now, you know, because Celia had sent my short stories. Um, And then I literally wrote a tweet about my dad, how I was writing this essay about his career. And she was like, okay, cool. Maybe tell me more about your dad. And then that turned into the book. Um, but I don't think anyone's yeah I think this book is the first one that you know this your father the hip-hop head. it's the first time I've self-published the book and you know one I've been happy with it and two like the people who've read it have been like no dude like we love how you engage with the subject matter this is good yeah and this is like from some people, like, I respect, like, so, you know, published authors, you know, ju- other journalists, so this is actually the first time I've released something I was happy with and people seem to enjoy as well, so, yeah. Did you yeah.
0: self edit by the way?
1: Yeah, that's the problem, because, yeah, I think I, I wrote the pieces, I think if you read the first one, because that was actually published yeah. in a publication, that, that one's fine, and then there's the one, Family Business, that one's cool as well, because, they they edited that but then they just never published the piece the other ones it was just like okay they'd been sitting on my laptop and I couldn't bring myself to giving them more than the world's most half-assed edit I was just like ah <laughs> let's put this together and let's go so yeah <laughs>
0: no because it's the it's the thing i fear the fucking most about self-publishing is the Mm. the self-editing more than anything else you know like having an editor to work with and having someone else to like bounce ideas around and like yeah like just having someone else like is super super useful uh but that's what like i think is really impressive about your book is that you know like you got co- well I couldn't tell that you know it was all self-edited like I figured that maybe you had sent it to some other people so
1: oh dope thanks man like I mean yeah like I mean th- that's really encouraging to hear and I think the fourth time of asking I- I- I'm not making as many mistakes as I did the first time but yeah you're right there's kind of like a lapse in quality when you self-publish like because you're essentially doing everything yourself you know I could have paid to get an editor, but then I'd have to pay to get an editor. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you got cost to cover. Yeah. So I don't know. I just, yeah. I I I, I don't think, and I know I said it the last, after I published Metanoa, and then, you know, I went on to self-publish. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to self-publish again. Yeah. It's just not worth the effort.
0: So self-publishing and buying a house when you're young, two things you don't recommend
1: doing. Yeah never
0: (laughs) Uh cool with that i think we're we're gonna end things bro thank you so much for your time this has been so dope it's been great actually getting to know you because i think both of us have slightly more abrasive twitter personalities than like our real life (laughs) personalities
1: are (laughs) yeah a hundred percent like because it's that's why it's the craziest thing like listening to your podcast because you're the complete opposite (laughs) you know what you are on twitter but i will say like sort of and maybe it's because you know this this the current twitter account you have is dedicated mostly to the podcast i think Bobness monster and almost perfect zerea like sort of not completely different but there is a noticeable shift you know what i mean The like the change in tone isn't negligible it's pretty apparent
0: yeah i'm trying <laughs> like just in general <laughs> just in general i'm trying to be like a more positive person that like you know hates everyone else slightly less because I am fucking misanthropic like that is the truth of the matter but at the same time life is beautiful people are cool like it's it's right you know there's no like why 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 do I have to hate all the time? So Misanthropic in the subtropics. Yeah you know <laughs> <laughs> so yeah man it's it's been a, a long journey and i'm just trying to get to that place where i just don't cuz it's also we all know that dunking on other people on the internet is like not a not a healthy thing to do like even yeah. if it's the politicians and even if it makes us all feel good and we know it's it's just fucking public stonings like it's just fucking you know going to the town square like and throwing apples at someone before their head gets
1: chopped off like it's it's weird <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's fucking weird it's weird <laughs> uh cool so
0: yeah i guess we started this conversation on, on that note and uh, we're gonna end it there too so once again thank you so much for your time refriwa
1: no stress man thanks for having
0: me